Welcome to the Eddie Tenty Podcast number 1044. Uh, just real, real, real quick. Uh, today is January 31st. I am in Philly at Helium for the weekend, Friday and Saturday, uh, January 31st, February 1st. And then if you go to wizardguitar.com, that'll give you uh, all the upcoming dates for my tour uh, that I have so far this year. More dates will be added soon. That's enough about me. Um, this episode is uh, Jason Belmonte. And Jason is the number one bowler in the world right now. And you might say to yourself, well, Chris, I don't, uh, I know you're into bowling. I know your dad's a bowler. I don't give a shit about bowling. And I'm going to tell you it doesn't matter because this, I can promise you, is one of my favorite conversations that I've ever had on the podcast. I mean, obviously, some of it kind of veers into my dad and we do talk about bowling in, in the broad sense and some specific details, but really it's about... Um, achieving greatness, maintaining positive mental health, setting good goals, um, sort of the, uh, the difference between like nature, nurture, uh, skill versus drive. Like there were so many, I listened to the podcast back and I was like, shit, I gotta write this down because <laughs> so many, so many good things came up and I really, really, really do think that if you're not familiar with Jason and like I said, if you don't care about bowling, give it a chance because I think it will delight and surprise you. So thank you to Jason, uh, for coming and doing the podcast, just to give you a little background. Um, Jason, and I met several years ago. Of course, we talk about this in the podcast. He passes through LA every once in a while. And we just went bowling the same day that we did the podcast, which is something we had been trying to align our schedule to do for a long time. Now, uh, Jason is Australian and one of the reasons why I'm putting up the bonus podcast this week is because obviously Australia was devastated by the wildfires. And Jason has started a relief fund uh, called Two Hands Helping Australia. And he's hoping to raise $150,000, which will be given to Red Cross Australia, uh, um, Wires Wildlife Fund, and the Rural Fire Service. Uh, all The, the money is going to be all distributed equally. And he is donating to the fund with $50 per strike on television for regular matches and $100 per strike in the title matches this PBA Tour season. It's on GoFundMe. Uh, it's the number two hands helping Australia, which takes its name from the fact that Jason is a two-handed bowler, which is a whole other fascinating thing that we're talking about. So you can either go to GoFundMe um, for the link, or you can text FIRE to 80255-BELMO, B-E-L-M-O, which is 80252 Three five six six to get the link sent directly to your phone, um, and so uh, you know, please look into that again. Uh, Australia was just devastated. I'm sure you saw all of the um, the heartbreaking footage um, uh, as it as as it played out. So thank you to Jason for doing this wonderful relief work for Australia, and thank you again to him for being just such a fantastic guy. This episode is a little bit longer than normal, but I think you will find that it is worth it. Also, just last little thing I'm going to say, it's very special to me because these types of conversations help me find more connection points to my dad, whom, of course, I miss every day. So a final thank you to Jason for helping to bring that out. And thanks for listening to this intro. And uh, let's start the thing. Initiating ID10T protocol.
I am worn out. To time? I am tired. Well, actually, I feel better than I thought I would. I should just give people some some history. Jason Belmonte, number one bowler in the world, <laughs> and a good and a good friend who you've tried for three years. You're you're so good about every time you come in because you live in Australia. Australia, you live in Australia, and every time you come into Pasteur LA, you go, "Hey, do you want a bowl?" And for three years, I've been like, "I would love to," and then plans change. We've never been able to work it out. And this time, we finally made it happen. Let me tell you, Chris, this, this was the <laughs> final time I was reaching out to you. <laughs> this was it! I, I was thinking to myself, man, three years I've been asking this guy to bowl. He keeps, keeps telling me, yeah, we're going to do it, we're going to do it. And then, oh, I'm, I'm in a different part of the world. I'm a different yeah. part of uh, the US. Um, Felt like know. an absentee father. Kiddo, we're going <laughs> to hang out next weekend. Dad's got to work right now, but I promise. Okay, Dad. All right. And I would tell people, too, yeah, we're scheduled to do it uh, on Wednesday. And then Wednesday would roll out and he'd be like, oh, I'm so sorry. I've got to change it. And I'd tell my family back home. I'd be like, I was so excited. I was so excited to bowl with Chris. And he's let me down once again. (laughs) He is not cool about this. But um, I first met you, I think it was in 2012, at the Chris Paul celebrity invitational thing. Um, which was so much fun, and I uh, that that was legitimately. I've done a lot of really fun, cool things, and that tournament in particular was very special to me for a lot of reasons. Number one, I met you, um, Chris Barnes, and I ended up the finals where me and Chris Barnes and I and you and Kevin Hart, who Kevin is an exceptionally good bowler, like surprisingly good, so yeah. good, and. We, um, it was a nail biter, and I think Barnes and I won by just a couple pins. We were pe- we were playing that, uh, oh, what's the name of it where we each take a frame? Baker. Ba- yeah. The ba- Baker, Baker format. Yeah. Yeah. Baker format, and I think we just won by a couple. It was like 249 to 248. It was so close. But the reason it was so special to me is because my dad was still alive then, and he got to see it, and he got to see me make like some clutch shots and he really connected with it, and so it was really that was so meaningful and special to me being being a part of that. And well, that I thing. mean, I think when when I first met you, there were some pretty cool people at mm-hmm. the event. I think uh, Little Wayne was there as well, or maybe it was a different one. But I, I remember thinking to myself, I really want to meet Chris. But you, you, <laughs> this is this is where the the bowling geek in me comes out. So obviously, you're an amazing comedian, awesome career, and. You probably have a lot of interests that are similar to mine, right? But I wanted to talk to you about your dad. Right? <laughs> I'm like, I want to meet this guy. So I can ask him questions about his dad and the PBA tour and oh, all yeah. these things. So it was it was really, really cool to meet you. And then as soon as I saw you bowl, I'm like, oh, clearly Papa's been teaching, you know, little boy a few lessons throughout the years. I wish you, I had, you I could wish, do it. God, I wish I had learned. I really wish I had learned more. But I, you know, I started bowling from the time I was could walk. And my dad obviously was on the tour my mother's father owned a couple houses in Florida, and so that's how my parents met. So my whole family was ensconced in bowling, and I was just in bowling centers my entire life. And when I turned 13, my parents had divorced right before that. My mom remarried. We moved to Denver, and I kind of had that sort of two things happen. The teenage attitude of like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue new things. Like, bowling is what I did when I was a kid. And when we moved to Denver, I wasn't in, I wasn't in a bowling center every day where I could bowl for free. All of a sudden, it was expensive, and I had to get there somehow. And so just logistically and philosophically, 
I kind of just gave it up until we started making those all-star celebrity bowling shows on YouTube in 2012. So you caught me like right when I was starting to get back into it. And uh, I love it. It's just, it's so much fun. It's, it's so hard to describe how, how we see the game of bowling because once you get into it, it, it is an addiction. It's, it sounds very odd, but it's this feeling of, of being able to get that, that perfect strike and then feeling, hearing it, seeing it, and you're like, I want to do that again. I want to do that again. And much like you growing up in bowling centers, I had the luxury of my parents owning a bowling center. Mm-hmm. So I heard the strikes. I saw the strikes every single day. And every single day I would see it and do it myself. I fell more and more in love with it. And it has now literally become an addiction of mine. I get very antsy if I if I haven't bowled for a couple of days. Yeah, I understand that. And I, I also, it's hard for people to understand when I walk into a, when I went into a bowling center and went from a very young age, my father was like, it's called a bowling center. Bowling alley is where shady people hang out. <laughs> you know, bowling's always had a bit of an image uh, problem. I've been to a few bowling alleys. Yeah. More about that. <laughs> but even the history of bowling in the United States, where it came from, how in the 1940s they tried to change the image and make it more family friendly. They like professional bowlers started, they dressed like milkmen. They had, they wore these all white, like almost like suit, like jacketless suits and tried to make it very like you know um it's 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 what upright citizens do and um and so when i go into a bowling center when i smell the lane oil and i hear the ambient pins for like i get so relaxed because it's such a significant chunk of my childhood and just like it was where i grew up yeah, well, there's no place like it in the world. Like, you're never going to go somewhere and go, hmm, this reminds me of a bowling centre. Like, you're either in one or you're not. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and you know, like you were just saying, the the, the smells, it, it almost unlocks memories that, you know, just trigger certain moments in bowling centres. And, you know, now um, I'm a professional. You know, some of those memories are much better than others. But uh, every single place I go to, there is a very distinct sound or, or even, yeah, yeah, scent to that place, whether it be the oil, the lanes, or, you know, the, the food that they cook there. It's very, very significant to that place. And as soon as you walk in, you're like, I remember this place. Yeah, and, it, and when my dad was still alive, it, we would talk about – because – I. I, I ended up embarking on this career that is, in a lot of ways, very p- parallel to being on the Professional Bowlers Tour, which is I travel from city to city. I'm in town for a few days. I do the thing I do. I you know I pack up. I fly home. I move on or whatever. And so whenever I was in a city, I'd call my dad. And I'd go, oh, you know, I'm in you know wherever I am. I'm in uh, Columbus, Ohio or whatever. And he'd go, oh, there's this house is there. I bowled at a tournament there in 19, whatever, 64 or whatever. And, and a lot of these towns, they, the places would still be there. So it was kind of a fun, I, I was almost sort of following his path in a way, like doing what I do, even though the careers weren't identical. Cause when I, from a very young age, my dad was like, he never pressured me to go to follow in his footsteps. He was like, you should pursue what you love, do what makes you happy. And he goes, and also bowling. He's like, it's not the most glamorous lifestyle. And he goes, this is not a lot of money in it. Don't. <laughs> he was like, he was always trying to like, dis- dis- try to distract me from going on tour almost in a well, way. And that's something that we're trying to change. I mean, it's no secret that in terms of sports out there, bowling is certainly not the most lucrative, but we have some really, I guess, inspiring 
things that have happened in the last couple of years that actually make me believe that, yeah, we may not ever get to like golf or tennis kind of prize money, but, you know, becoming a multimillionaire within a season or two, I think is a real reasonable goal that we're trying to set. So some of the things that have happened, we moved from ESPN to Fox Sports to Fox and Fox are so supportive, so much more supportive than what we were getting from ESPN where it became more reruns and more advertisements to promote us and they're doing better production. All those things make a big difference when you're trying to uh, you know, get sponsorship dollars. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing that happened, which was very recent, is the biggest bowling center chain, Bolaro, have purchased the PBA. So now we have a company that makes... Um, I think the last report that came out was between five and six hundred million dollars a year in, Jesus. in in yearly people going to their centers and and um, and their profits. So now we have a really supportive network. We have an ownership that make a lot of money and are willing to invest a lot of money into the PBA tour. And already, like literally by clicking their fingers, the 2020 season, they just threw another $400,000 in for the sake of it, just because they said, ah, oh, we want to put some more money into this. So there are some really positives that are coming from it. Plus, and I, I know I keep saying all these positives, but it's true, but plus... Bolin is kind of taking this spike towards it's retro, but it's cool again. A lot of, you know, younger generation kids are kind of looking at bowling as this was something that I used to do with my grandfather and, and I kind of, or, or even my father, and I want to get more involved mm-hmm. with the sport that I used to do as a real little kid. So we're seeing the 18 to 35-year-old demographic kind of get back into bowling, which you know, if you're a sponsor or you're you're looking to grow anything, you want that demographic. That's the ones that are spending the most money. Well, and also bowling is a great is great because it doesn't matter if you're tall, short. If you know, like you don't have to be particularly sportsy. Like you can you can learn to do it. It's not just like I'm going to go play football. Like I mean, I couldn't. I was a very small kid. I couldn't do that. I could bowl, but I certainly couldn't really play other sports. But the thing that I love about it now is. When we people still talk to me about the All Star Celebrity Bowling Show that I used to do because we really tried to capture the experience of what it was like to just go hang out with your friends, and I think in a world where we it's so easy to get isolated and distracted by our devices, and it's very there are more and more reasons to not leave your home because all of our entertainment is there, and Amazon will fucking practically drop stuff into your food into your mouth. You know, like why would you put on pants and leave the house? Bowling, I think, is is really one, and you know, we have arcades at home, so you don't have to go out to arcades anymore. You can, but you don't have to. Bowling is really one of those, like, one of the last great things that's so social that you can do in real life and interact with your friends in a real way, and you know, not spend a ton of money, and then, but then, just to have, like have a real life communal experience with people. Yeah, I think it's still one of the the true sports where. No virtual experience in bowling will ever replicate the trueness of the sport. And you could probably argue that would be very similar to to most sports. But I would imagine that I could stand in front of my TV with a virtual headset on and I could hit a tennis ball over. And it would be closer to the real thing than if I were to bowl uh, a a ball that doesn't exist. Yeah, I know? got real good at Wii bowling several <laughs> yeah, years ago. I'm but really that was bad it. at Wii bowling. <laughs> Every time it pulls out, everyone's like, oh, dude, Jason's going to smash us in this. And I'm like, got a ball, got a ball, so for six. Pe- for people who aren't familiar with you, who maybe don't follow the tour or whatever, 
you're really fascinating because you're you're a very uh, I imagine when you came on the tour it, you were you were sort of a unique animal in the sense that you're Australian obviously and um, and you bowl with two hands which was not really I think now has come more into style and fashion it's just not anything I never saw anyone do that before you and uh, and so e- even just like your approach to the game and like culturally and physically is really interesting. What what was bowling like growing up in Australia? Is it pretty much is it like well it's like here but people uh, it's just like but they're Australian or what's the what's the sort of the cultural mindset around bowling in Australia when you were growing up? Yeah, I think it's there's two major differences. One, um, most Australians when it comes to bowling, there isn't an ego attached to it. So we all. We all kind of bowl, we all have fun, but we also recognize where we are in the pecking order. I think here in the US, um, there was a lot more ego behind it. Like everyone thought they were the best. And that's typically why... Welcome to America. Well, but that's typically why I think the competition was always so much stronger because you had people who genuinely thought, not just one or two, but you know, dozens and dozens of people who thought, I'm the best. So whoever's going to bowl against me isn't going to win. And there was a very fierce competitive nature over here. So I had to quickly learn, you know, the high fives that I was given in Oz weren't reciprocated <laughs> quickly over here. So that's probably one of the biggest differences that I found. The second thing is, is um, you know, we, we didn't have access to the PBA in Australia for a really long time. So I didn't even know there was a pro tour until... We had an American family who moved to my hometown. Uh, he was working with a mining company uh, just outside of Orange, where I live, and his contract ended. So he went back home with his family. But we got to be quite good friends, and he bowled league, and his family were awesome. And then, you know, sporadically, we would get these tapes sent to us in the mail, and they would be of the PBA tour. Oh, so wow. then we realized. You know, there's there's a pro tour, right? Mm-hmm. And he told us all about it, but I'd never seen it. So when I was about 9, 10, 11, I first heard there was a pro tour. And then I started to get these tapes that were sent to us every now and then. And that's when I realized, whoa, bowling is very different. Like they're on television, there's massive crowds. And here in Oz, it's still, even though we play league and we do have some tournaments, it's not nearly as fierce and competitive. Plus, I didn't see anybody bowling with two hands. Over yeah, the- how did that happen? Like it, it, it's just, it's not, well, I mean, I, it's easy for me to say because I've been bowling my whole life. But to me, it doesn't seem intuitive to pick it up with two hands like it but i guess that's just because i only ever saw people do it quite the contrary so i started bowling when i was 18 months old my mum and dad built a bowling center um purely as this crazy idea neither of them had ever bowled a ball in their life (laughs) they had no concept about what the game was it was just a rainy sunday afternoon uh, in the small country town in Australia, and someone said, let's go bowling, and they said, well, we, we don't have a bowling center here. So the very next day, they decided to to build one. That's how it all started. So I'm this 18-year-old kid. Mum and dad aren't bowlers. They're not coaches. The ball was too heavy for me Are to you're 18 use. months. You're 18 months. 18 months old. Yeah. Um, so it opened a couple of weeks after I was born. So now I'm at the age where I can handle a bowling ball with two hands on my own. I can kind of waddle to the line and throw it down the lane. And, and essentially, while mum and dad were busy at work, they turned on a lane, gave me a ball, 
and said, bowl all day, son. Get I out of our hair, drill. right? Yeah. So I would do it this way. And because the ball was too heavy, I continued to do it this way. And as I was getting older, I realized I'm actually getting better at this particular style. But still, bowling with two hands. Mom and dad weren't coaching me out of it. They didn't know how to. I would get a few you know, comments here or there about, hey, it's time to be a big boy. You know, time to, <laughs> to bowl normally. <laughs> but the one thing as I was getting older, the one thing that, Every time someone said to me, you should conform to the traditional style, I would look at the scores and go, but like I'm beating you. So why would I want to to be like you if I'm already beating you? And the other thing was I could curve the ball. The way that I had taught myself the bowl, I was able to put this massive curve on and no one else in town could do that. And to me, that was cool. So not only was I bowling with a massive cool curve, uh, I was beating them and I saw no reason to change. And then the stubbornness in me said, well, until I'm getting beaten by a particular style, I'm not going to change. Like, why would I? Yeah. If anyone's never, for people who haven't seen your bowl before, it's really, it's fun to watch because it, the ball like almost hangs on the first five boards, which is the far right, uh, it's far, the far right of the lane, until like the last second. And then it just, it slingshots at what looks like is going to be an impossible angle, like right into the, into the pocket. Yeah, there are many times I, I'm not entirely sure if it's going to hook either. <laughs> You're like, there's I don't a, think it's there's a thought oh, in the back of my mind, like, please hook, please, <laughs> please, please hook back. But it's, you know, there's... It's 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 a really fun um, it's really fun to hear someone else's journey with it because it you know it's just it was so much a part of my life and and you'll meet people out in the world who you know there's a handful of us who grew up in bowling centers and I feel like it's a relatively parallel thing like you know parents manager on a bowling center they turn on a lane you'd bowl all day whatever you'd get good at it but then you know it's like well what do you what do you do with it and my dad. It was very much an escape for him because he had a pretty toxic relationship with his father. And so my dad was a porter at a bowling center and called Belmateo Bowl in San Mateo, California. He uh, got good, left home at 17, got some sponsors, went on the tour, bombed horribly, came back the next year and realized, like, I have one more shot. And so he needed to raise, I think it was $2,000, so he found, like, 20 people to give him 100 bucks. And he said something changed in his psychology because he used to, like, you know, he'd get around these pros that he had seen before and he was very sheepish around them. And if they were up at the approach at the same time, he'd bow, bow down. Oh, my God, you go, you go. And he said something changed where a fire lit under him and he realized, like, if I don't own this now, I'm never going to be able to do this. So when they'd get up on the approach, he would wait until they would back down and he owned it. And then from there, it sort of took off. But... It's. I would love to also talk about like. Yes, it is a physical game, and you know all sports are somewhat physical, but really like eighty percent mental. It's really can you silence the chatter in your mind to get your brain out of the way to just let your body do what you know the muscle memory of what you've repeated over and over again. Yeah, I, I like to think of it though. I think it's a hundred percent mental, a hundred percent physical. That's how I interpret it. Is I never want to go into a tournament and feel like. I am not 100% physically ready and I'm not 100% mentally ready because your listeners may not know, but 
let's say a major championship is coming up, the format for a major championship is grueling. We don't play one or two games and then there's a champion. You might see it on television, which is the, the final five step mm-hmm. ladder, and it is one, one game head-to-head matches. But to get to that part of the tournament, we will play over 50 games, split over five days of competition, starting at you know, 9.30, 10 a.m. in the morning, finishing at 8 p.m. at night. It is incredibly grueling so you need to be physically fit but you need to be able to say when i throw my very last shot of the last day of qualifying i need to be mentally in the right space strong to execute that that delivery that i need to do because you know you can be physically fit but if you're you know thinking about other things and distracted whether it be from sounds noises people chatter um you know thoughts are popping into your head as you're bowling well you're not you're not going to execute the shot. You're not going to get the strike. So you need to be able to be really strong all day long, both physically and mentally. And that's something that I think I've been very fortunate that just naturally I, I tend to have that ability, like whether it be back home playing bowling or whether it be playing cricket or rugby or whatever it was, it, I always felt like my natural instinct as a player was I was on from when the whistle went to the whistle went again. Like there was no time off mentally or physically. I gave it everything I had and I've kind of taken that into my professional career. And a lot of times you'll see players and there'll be just a moment of frustration that leads to another moment of frustration and then there's just a time bomb waiting to happen. And you see them, they're just they doing okay, they're doing okay, the bomb goes off and then you see them plummet in the, yeah. the score. I mean, it's, it's, you know, and that's what happened to my dad. My dad retired at 34, which is insanely young, you know, and to his credit, he still, having retired at 34, was still, you know, like, I don't know, the 12th greatest bowler in the history of the sport. And so it... He did an amazing. He did amazing work in the seventeen years that he was active. But when he was thirty-four, you know, he'd already been married a few times, and he lost a son in a previous marriage. And then he and my mom lost a baby, you know, and it was born prematurely and died, and had a bad relationship with his father. It was a period of time where people didn't go to therapy. You know, he drank. Yeah, not and to mention the tour was a high volume alcohol. Yes, consuming. which completely blows me away because you. I don't know how it's like I would imagine that profession more than almost any other probably had the highest number, at least when he was on the tour of like functioning alcoholics that it's like, how do you how do you bowl that grueling schedule and still be able to keep up with with the drinking schedule, which felt like it was a whole separate job. But I imagine it was just like they were so overwhelmed, like the how do you decompress? How do you unwind? And then the game itself You know, I was talking to a therapist once about like, you know, about perfectionism and like, yeah, I know. I just, I get really focused on details and like I'm in perfectionist. And she's like, well, when's the earliest memory that you have? I'm like, I don't know. You know, I bowled a lot when I was a kid, you know, and, um, you know, bowling's really interesting because you have to get to, oh my God, there's a perfect game. Like I was conditioned for perfection because bowling has, like most other sports don't, it's like, oh, you might get a high score in football. You might get a high score in basketball. You know, you can win some straight sets in tennis. But bowling actually is one of the few sports, I think, that, that actually has a measure of perfection. And trying to hold up to that ideal is is very oppressive, especially as you get I, – I just – I can feel the butterflies like five strikes, six strikes, seven strikes. Oh, God, don't fuck this up. Don't fuck this up. And to this day – 
you know, I've never bowled a perfect game. I shot 289 when I was 11. I had 10 strikes in a row, and then I left like a 10-pin or something. And I quit when I was 13, so I never I never completed the circle, and it's one of my regrets in life that I never bowled a perfect game while my dad was still alive. Yeah, well, lucky for you, you're not dead, so you, <laughs> you still have time. But my dad's dead, so I can't, I just have to be like, okay, I did it! I hope you're watching this, god damn it. You know, my, my, I have a half-brother who bo- has bowled a perfect game, and he didn't grow up bowling as much as oh, I so did. you're not even the best uh, son or no. Hardwick yeah, or that's, right. that's left that's bowling yeah. right Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm aware. Uh, you need to go to therapy. You're right. That's, that's gonna really hurt. But it is. But but that I. But that idea of like. But that idea of having a profession where there is a perfect a perfect ideal um, is it fucks with you gotta fuck with your head. Yeah. Well, I think and in, in any profession, to be honest, like let's take your like even if you take your your comedy, you know, um, or any comedian for that matter, you, you don't want to go out there and. Bomb! You you want to go out there and just nail the performance, and much like a perfect game, you know you can be going really well with the set, and then you just screw one part of that set up, and it's either going to, depending on how how good of a comedian you are, it's either going to throw you off for the rest of the set, or you're going to pull it back right. and and get the crowd back or fall back into your routine and and nail the rest of the performance. And the same thing happens to bowling, right? So you start off with a couple of strikes, and then that split appears. We're doing this every single day for five days, eight hours, ten hours of the day. There are a lot of moments where you're getting those splits, not just once or twice. It does a lot of moments. So you have to find that balance of being able to accept what has happened, moving on and and not allowing what has happened to affect what's going to happen so you can just kind of get back on track. And some guys, especially in the early parts of the PBA tour, relied on substance to mm-hmm. help that balance, whether it be, you know, they just want to check out mentally. So they, they took substance or if it was because they felt like all the other distractions in their life hindered their ability to bowl. So, you know, taking a few shots before throwing a game might have just released some of that, you know, kind of mental process of thinking about yeah the 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 at-home troubles or the traveling of which there were a lot because it's a profession where people are gone like 40 50 weeks a year and so there's a strict you know there was littered with broken marriages and guys you know who were sleeping around or whose wives were sleeping around like it was just it was just like turbulent turmoil and then don't forget you mentioned it earlier it wasn't the most financially secure career and to this day it's still the same way you know you you either get a strike right this very moment and you you can move on in the tournament and then you have a chance to win a hundred thousand dollars if you miss right now you might get a check for five hundred dollars right so if you miss not only do you sacrifice the potential of a big price check but now you've got to pay for all those expenses you've got the financial hardship and you know, if you're in the top 10 on the PBA tour, you're living really well, mm-hmm. right? You're you're driving pretty much whatever car you would like. You're owning your house and you're living really comfortably. You're never worrying about your bank account. Once you go from 10 to 20, it becomes a little bit more, right, we're going to make sure I'm spending my money properly. Sure. And then below 20, it is, yeah, it's tournament to tournament. I need to have a good week this week so I can pay for next week. And then when things don't go well, yeah, there's a lot of stress. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of you know, pressures from home, not just on yourself. So I can totally understand why substance abuse in bowling was something that was drawn to a lot. And, you know, you're talking about how did people compete. I, you know, I was never around in the 50s and 60s, but I wonder what the percentage really was of 
how many were intoxicated while bowling. So it's kind of like, well, if everyone's doing it, the true, the best bowler will still shine, right? Because everyone's <laughs> everyone, everyone, everyone has that same <laughs> Every, alcohol. Yeah, handicap. everyone's seen yeah, fifteen and a same. half pins instead of ten. Well, so. but that's but that you know, and for me, what has always been difficult with bowling is is to get around result oriented thinking. And and you know, we're talking about bowling, but this is really life stuff, right? So it's getting around. Like even today, when I stand on the approach, I'm thinking like, get a strike, get a strike, get a strike, rather than. I'm, I just need to do these processes and stay in the moment and then not worry, and then just sort of like with the ball, let it go. You know, my dad in the last like year or two of his life said something that was, at least for bowling, was very profound to me, which was like, he goes, it's not a throwing game, it's a lifting game. It doesn't matter how hard you throw the ball, you just have to lift the ball just over the foul line and then let the ball do the work. And that was really interesting because it was really... The, the wider implications were about like letting go and not trying to control the result and not trying to control the ball. And when people go recreational bowling and, you know, they think I throw a bit of a hook, but maybe that's just because they haven't seen you. And they go, well, I can't do that. And I go, yeah, you can't because you have a house ball. House balls aren't designed to do that. So you're really with a house ball bowling more Fred Flintstone style, which is I just need power, you know. But when you start moving up in equipment, it's there's some really beautiful, delicate physics that are involved with, you know, the rotational axis of the ball and how much momentum you're picking up and, and the and the angles and the and the dispersion of the pins. And not to mention like the, the cover, the outside of the bowling ball and how it can be manipulated and change the surface of it to interact with the oil on the lane. So you can make a ball go straighter or hook more depending on that surface mixed with yeah the the axis of rotations and tilts you can change on the ball and your speed variance your rev rates um there are so many different ways to throw a bowling ball and that's probably one of the most misunderstood things about the sport of bowling is the recreational side is is so much just pick the ball up, throw it at the head pin, and then you either there's get a, a black light on. That's there's it. like there's like some hip hop playing, you know. <laughs> it's like people can't they're getting drunk, they can't. But uh, years ago, my dad was you know he was f- fairly vocally frustrated because as you know like an old timer, he was like, God damn it, the sport's just gotten so much easier now because he said the bo- the the technology you know it's like. The lanes aren't wood anymore. They're synthetic material. They've laser printed wood grain on because it's, you know, it, like it keeps the surface flat. Mm-hmm. And in the old days, it was wood. They'd have to resurface it every once in a while because it would wear down. He said, you know, the balls, you know, it's like when I was bowling, they were rubber. They were these hard rubber balls, you know. And he said, now there are these cover stocks, this reactive resin that uh, he said it's become more of a strike game. And I think my dad was bowler of the year with. You know, he led the tour with an average of like 212 point something. And now averages are like 240, 250. And so I actually wrote an article for Wired Magazine about it in 2008 or something. That's probably on the internet somewhere. And I actually talked to people who did research on this. And they had a robot throw this robot arm to throw ball after ball after ball. And they sort of realized like, oh, yeah, the technology is kind of... You know, this, this, the the cover stock has these glass particles in it, and it, it, when it heats up, the it the 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 cover kind of melts a little bit, and the glass particles grab the lane and whip it into the pocket. And so, you know, is the are, are, do they? What are the limits now on the technology of the game so that it's so that everyone's not bowling three hundreds all the time? Well, I mean, yes. Uh, there's a couple of rebuttals. Yes, in there. please, please. This there's is a couple this of is, rebuttals. I can't. This is what this is. This is what I want to hear about. So. 
the game, has it gotten easier? And I think it all depends on what you consider the score, right? And what I mean by that is, do you look at your average? Does that is that the, the determining factor in in performance, right? Because, like you said, let's take the two eras as an example. So this previous season, 2019, I was fortunate enough to win the Player of the Year. Yeah, very happy, and I averaged uh, 229. Okay. okay. Now your dad won the Player of the Year in whatever year that was, nineteen seventy. No, he was Bowler of the Year, I think, in sixty three and sixty nine. I think. Okay. Bowler of the Year twice. Yeah. So let's say it was two twelve. Now, if we were to compare the scores, you could argue one is higher than the other, but the field itself is equal. So in my generation, we're using equipment that has new technologies. We can strike more, but all of my competitors have access to the same... It was like the alcohol thing. <laughs> sure. The opposite Everyone of the alcohol got the thing. Same Everyone's got the same stuff. So if we were to bring your dad back and ask him to use his Can original... Can you do that? <gasps> Can you bring my dad back? Oh my God, Jason. Why? You should have said something before. I said if. When's he okay. coming? Is he coming? If. He's coming if, here. If I do, I'm pretty sure the last thing that he wants to do is bowl a match against me. I think he's got some other things he, to, uh, my dad, to my do. Dad, my dad stopped bowling because he... He had this idea where he said, the, the, the longer I don't bowl, the better I was. He was like, I'm never going to be as good as I used to be. And he goes, the longer I don't bowl, people just come up with these, like the stories get more elaborate. And he loved, he loved that kind of peacocking. He was very proud of that. So anyway, so everyone so, has the same equipment. That's right. So if we were to compare the equipment and bring that equipment into today's era, sure, it's unfair. The scoring pace would be different. But that's not the world we live in. So when people are talking about, you know, who was the better player, which was Bill Billy Hardwick better than the current guys? And the question shouldn't be, is it better or who is the better player? It was, who was the best in that generation when you're, all you're, things you're, were equal? You're calculating for inflation, basically. That's sort of like saying this movie only made this much, but 30 years later, this movie, it's like, well, you got to calculate for inflation. Exactly. Like, what's the ratio and what, what really is leveling the playing field? So talking about the technology in bowling, not only is the bowling balls different with more technology based into them, we have more precise oiling machines now. So when you go to a bowling center, one of the main reasons why we all tell you not to go past the line is because you don't want to end up on some fail video by slipping over. <laughs> but the secondary reason is because there's oil on the lane that you can create um, in a shape, in a, in a pattern, a design. And it's much like a golf hole where you have par threes, par fours, and par fives, and they're all designed differently. Well, you can um, design an oil pattern to be easy, moderate, difficult. So our ability with technology is yes, we can make the lanes very, very easy because we have the technology to essentially like an inkjet printer going down the lane, you know, squirting the oil in the, the exact positions that we wanted to be. But we could also do it so it's very, very difficult. And they, they didn't have that luxury prior to this technology. It was all hand-based. So your hand was inconsistent. You know, you would squirt an oil piece here and then use a cloth and rub it across the lane to try and even it out. You're never going to do that equally across the whole house. So it would be, some lanes would be rather easy and then you would go to some lanes and it would be really difficult because of the manual way that you would, you could, you could do the oil. Without any fault of anyone just trying to do their best, it was just natural variation. Now, everything can be done to the one millionth of a milliliter, a, a millimeter, that we can make sure that every single lane is impossible. 
<laughs> every single lane is really easy. And that's like that's like if if you played basketball and the the oil pattern is basically the same as saying like okay, um we're going to create a barrier in front of the net and it's going to change mm-hmm. and it's going to change from game to game and then also the more you play, it's going to it's going to wear holes in it. It's going to wear it down so that you can't just do the same shot every time. I mean, we and of course we got to talk about this, but we actually did go bowling before the we podcast. Did. We bowled five games and even just you bowl, um, you bowl one game, and you've already worn the oil pattern down. You have to start making adjustments, and so there's a whole that, that whole other barrier is in the way of trying to calculate. You know, move one board over to the left, up to this way, throw the ball a little bit further this way. So you're still always trying to use your best guess of where you're kind of chasing the oil pattern the whole time. Yeah, and and again, not to necessarily compare the the past to now again, but you know the styles. I throw the bowling ball with two hands. The RPMs that I'm putting on a bowling ball are close to 600 RPMs. No one in your dad's era was bowling revolutions <laughs> like that. So now if you can imagine a bowling ball spinning quite you know, ferociously down the lane and then there's an oil in which the ball is coming into contact and there's this thing that is spinning really quickly. Well, of course, the ball is going to now interact with that oil and in what bowling balls do is the materials that it's made is it soaks that oil into the cover as it's going down and the reason it wants to do that is because it wants to hook right the technology wants the ball to curve so in order for it to hook it needs to create friction so it needs to pull that oil off the lane soak it into the ball which then creates more friction on the lane and therefore you create more curve now if i bowl like we did today one or two games you know, and not not to necessarily say how accurate I am, mm-hmm. but if I'm hitting the same area very consistently, well, there's going to be less and less oil on the on that line that I've, I've you change you change balls after like four games and you started. Uh, sooner it was actually after the first game and then i changed lines and i was constantly moving because that oil is constantly changing you ended you finished with a ball that hooked way less you finish bowling with your spare ball because i have a strike ball and a spare ball and the strike ball hooks and the spare ball is plastic and it doesn't hook as much because you need straighter shots for spares and it looked to me like you were throwing your first shot with your spare ball by the end of the by by the fifth game yeah yeah well i well Truth be told, Chris, I also wanted to give you a bit of a chance. Ah, I okay. appreciate that. That was very so kind. After I was four and zero, the first four, I, I felt bad. I did not want to leave. Thank you. Thank without you. you having an opportunity. I appreciate that. So I, I was able to win one game, but it was <laughs> but I was very lucky because it again. You don't think of bowling as a strenuous game, but you bowl five games in a row, and you're not used to you're not used to the stamina of you know like hurling you know your a, a large object with your arm and your body and it's just like you you fucking get tired like and so even just to bowl five games and be exhausted it's like holy shit these guys bowl you know bowl 50 games and it, it's crazy to me but and you, not to mention you have an injury you know like that was five games that we played today oh yeah it opened thumb. my my thumb open my thumb always opens up when i because i, I but that's really what know. happens on tour so yeah you know we don't get tackled by some 350 linebacker and we you know rupture a tendons and you know break bones make it fun though but right but what we can do is we get these ridiculous cuts and and blisters that pop open and blood is pouring on our hands and it is a very 
you know, it's, you can still live, but it's painful. You're, you're trying to squeeze a bowling ball and throw it for the 50th game. Your hand is swollen. You've got cuts all over it. Your fingers are bleeding. You know, it's, it's not... Again, the sport of bowling is so misunderstood. People think it's you just grab the ball, you throw it at the head pin, and you bowl for a game or two, and, and that's the end of it. Then you go home. It's the complete... It's so misunderstood because there are so many factors. And if, if anyone listening just goes to the bowling center and says to the, to the manager or whoever's working there and say, hey, give me five games. Like, I'll bowl five games right now. It would surprise me if every single person listening that is a non-bowler could actually bowl five games and go, I can bowl another five more. It well, would surprise and, like, me. Like, by themselves, because when you're, at least when you're bowling with a group, because I bowled for my birthday this year, and I hadn't bowled in a few years, but about a month ago, I took a group of like 10 people bowling. And then you're talking, it's fun, you know, it's like there's a good five, seven, eight, ten minutes in between each time you have to pick up the ball. You don't get as tired quickly. But when you and I were bowling, it was just it was rapid fire, and then you realize like how strenuous it is on on the body after a while. And I mean, I, I'd say except for the fourth game, I was probably I averaged maybe one seventy five, one eighty today, which I'm I'm fine with. But my fourth game is when my thumb opened up. I couldn't get my whole thumb into the ball, and I shot like one thirty six because I just couldn't. And then finally, in the fifth game, I just ripped the flap of skin yeah. off because I'm like, fuck, it's just, I'm going to just... <laughs> and all I was thinking was, is that's going to hurt oh, so much. Oh, it did. Much. It did. And then, and then my thumb was like, literally, like, blood was coming out by the fifth game, but I just, I didn't want to end on a 130. Like, I was, you know, bowling is interesting because you are, you are not just competitive with another person. You also have to be competitive with the lane conditions and you have to be competitive with yourself in such a consistent way over and over and over and over and over. And that comes back to what you were talking about with the process versus result. You're 100% right. Like, I'm watching, if you look at a scoreboard and you see the player who's coming in front of you or behind you and you're, you're focusing on them, it's so easy to be distracted because you aren't actually... It's not like in tennis where if I hit the ball into the corner and, Chris, you have to run from the left side to the right side, I'm tiring you out based mm -hmm. on what I'm doing right. on the other side of the net. In bowling, if those guys are striking, I can't stop them from striking, <laughs> right? I can only control what I'm doing. So it comes down to, again, that process versus result. You're so concerned about what, what the result is going to be. Watching you bowl today, it was... So funny watching from behind because you're you're, you're going to be quite modest, but you have some ability. Okay, like you know how to bowl. You you not only do you have it in your blood, but you're a, you're a clever guy. So when you're bowling, you're seeing the very subtle changes that you're making, and the shots that were terrible were the were always the ones that you're trying to get the strike. Like oh, I'm trying to percent. get the strike. Oh my god, you're so right and. You know, my dad would always say, like, look, you know, the ball used to be bigger than you, and so you used to have to throw it as hard as you could, and because you quit when you were 13, you didn't evolve with the sport. And so when you started bowling again in your late 30s, you still were a kid that was having to throw the ball, this pla a plastic ball, as hard as you could, and so... My impatience and my, you know, like what's so ingrained in me is I pick up the ball, I run as fast as I can to the foul line, I throw the ball as hard as I can, and I have to force myself to just just let, let the ball go. And even the one time you go, well, which was a great piece of advice, you go, why don't you use your strength as, um, why, don't you, why don't you use uh, how hard you throw the ball as your strength? And so you moved me 
out to the edge of the of the lane and I had much better results because I was staying inside more, trying not to throw the ball as hard, but then just fucking throwing it hard every time. And so it uh, it if I were to really take it seriously again, um, I would have to sort of unlearn a lot of very ingrained habits and relearn how to bowl the way the sport is now, which I'm it's just I'm not that familiar with. And even like a month ago, I don't know, I shot like 214, 220, 165, right? Like I was totally happy with that. And today I just I could not get past 180. But I was also probably nervous because, you know, like, <laughs> you know, it's like you're the number one bowler in the world. Yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure if nerves played a part. I think you're probably just under-practiced. You know? <laughs> I think if we get you out into the lanes, I think you're, yeah, you have some, uh, you know, I guess history, uh, you know, kind of memory low memory that's in there that, that's kind of causing some of those bad habits. I but could be like a 205 average bowler. I reckon I could get, if we practice together, let's say, no more than three more times for the same amount of time that we bowled today. And what did we bowl today? Like an hour and a half together? Yeah, about it, yeah. I think I would improve your overall game and average to be well over 200. You say 205. I think I can get you even higher than that because you already, you're a clever guy. Like half the battle in bowling is understanding physics, understanding the way the ball goes through the pins and making your adjustments on the lane. So that's, there's a, a very creative thought process that if the ball is overhooking, underhooking, is it going too fast? Is it going too slow? Recognizing all of that, but then understanding what the adjustment is going to be. Do I need to change ball? Do I need to change the surface of my ball? Whatever it is. Where do I have to hit this pin to bounce it off this? You have that. So that's a hard thing to learn if you're trying to learn it because there are so many variables that you have to teach someone. But you're kind of, you already understand that. So now it comes down to let's just get you physically repeating the same shot over and over and over. And then you'll be fine. That's why I'm telling you three more times. Um, I reckon at well over 200. I think average. it's mental game also because I have got to stop. Yeah, there were a few times you throw the ball and I just hear this. Fuck! Because <laughs> the second it would leave my hand, I would go, God damn it. Oh. Because you know, like when, when you're a bowler, you know the second the ball leaves your hand, the second the ball comes out of your hand, you go, it's going in the pocket. Or that's going to go left, you know, and hit on the Brooklyn side. Or that's going to, oh, I, I threw it too hard. It's just going to slide and it's not even going to make it to the pocket, you know. Like, you know right away. And in my head, the whole time, I'm thinking, uh, don't throw it hard. Don't throw it hard. Get a strike. Get a strike. Get a strike. And it's like, that's not, not only is that not good for bowling, but that that's not good for, like, that's not a good way to live your life. Because it's, if you're constantly worried about creating a perfect result... You cannot be present in the process. Yeah. And if you can't be present in the process, you're not going to create the very so result. What, what's your process on the stage, right? So when you let's say you're let's say you've just written a new set. Let's say you've written five new jokes that you want to try out and see if they work. Are you standing on the stage with the intention of I'm going to make people laugh? Or are you going this is how I need to uh, set the joke up and this is how I need to then nail the the punchline and that's how I'm going to deliver it. Whether or not I get the laugh, that's going to be told by the crowd. My best afterwards. sets, I don't worry about the result. And, and I've, I do it, I've, and again, it's sort of like what you said about repetition. I've done it for so long, you know. I've been but doing... a new joke. Let's say you've written something new and you're yeah. like, I don't know how this is going to play out. You're never going on the stage thinking, this is going to, I'm going to make everyone laugh with this joke. You're, you're thinking about how am I going to deliver it? Well, right? I'm thinking about, like, 
I, for whatever reason, and it's sort of the same way that I run the podcast too. I let it be whatever it's going to be. And I'm able to release the results. But, you know, with a podcast or with stand-up, there's no perfect... I mean, it's like I, I kind of made a joke because in one of the games, I, I, you know, first frame was a strike. And the next frame, I left an eight count. And I was like, well, there goes the 300. And I was joking. But at the same time, I really did feel that on a molecular level. But with stand-up, there's so much of an arc to it that I can try a new joke. And I also don't sweat it if it doesn't go well. Because to me, the set isn't ruined because of one or even a couple of bad jokes. And as long as I'm not sweating it, the audience isn't going to sweat it. And I'm, I just have the sort of ingrained confidence that I know how to do this and I'll bring it around and if I have to abandon my material and go into the audience and make it about them and talk to them I can do that too and so it's just the that's just the confidence that comes with you know the 10,000 hours and that's how I am on the lanes right so I don't get that strike the first or second shot I'm not necessarily you know freaking out I'm not going to bowl a perfect game I'm thinking about well, my next one is is I'm going to focus on throwing the ball where I need to throw it, and we'll see what happens from there. And yeah. that's kind of like you. Yeah, the joke didn't work. Ah, doesn't matter. I will move on to, quote, unquote, next frame. Yeah. Right? And that's exactly how I'm doing. But today when I'm watching you bowl, you were like, strike. All right, 300 is still on. I'm like, Chris, it's the first <laughs> frame, mate. Like, That's how my brain works. Take, take and, a chill pill for and a And when second. I was a kid, I used to get really frustrated, and now, like, I don't really care anymore because I, you know, even if I throw a bad shot and I'm like, ah, fuck, you know, I'm also realistic. Like, I don't do this very, like, it doesn't, I, it doesn't affect me in the same, in the same way anymore. And I used to take it really hard when I was a kid, which is funny because my parents never pressured me. They were the coolest, like, most easygoing, like, do what makes you happy. You know, my dad was like, I don't care if you're a, you know, a great bowler or a great this or a great that, just be the best you, you like, don't. And so I don't know where it came from, but it it's, but with comedy, like I just, I don't know. I'm just able to let it go. I'm just able, I'm just able to let it go. And it doesn't really, it doesn't really affect me in the same way. But I think that, um, that sort of, and it also in learning piano this last year, it's been really interesting because it sort of dispels some of the romanticism of, art in a way where you kind of go fuck it's really just kind of muscle memory Mm. if you do like whatever you focus on a lot whatever you practice a lot you're gonna get good at now obviously there's the level between sort of like what you said like the one through ten and then the ten through twenty if you want to be great there is an artistry to that but if you want to be really good at something most people can really pick up almost anything and if they just repeated it And, you know, they were consistent and they had a good teacher and they had, you know, like most people can kind of get good at most things. 10,000 hours. Isn't that what they say? 10,000 hours to do anything to become a master at it, whether you have experience or not at all. It's it's from naught to 10. On the 10,000th hour, you should be really good. But I think, yeah, but then but then I think I do believe that there is a step between between technical mastery and artistry and there's artistry in everything because I was talking but that separates the good from the greatest the of great, all time because I was talking to um, I have a guitar teacher that I see every once in a while we were sort of talking about guitar and he's like yeah you know like there's legendary guitarists and they get up on stage and they just shred the fuck out of the guitar and he goes those aren't as interesting to me as if you watch someone you know like you watch like a Pink Floyd type of band. He's like, they can play every note, but they don't. They pick the right ones. And I was like, oh my God, you're right. 
you know, almost anyone can become technically proficient at something, but it's about picking the best things that separates a robot from an artist. Yeah, I had this conversation with a couple of mates back home about, you know, the greatest bands of all time. And and one of the things that we kind of come, we came to this conclusion that, you know, for example, the Beatles, mm-hmm. so many of their songs if are incredibly basic to play. Right, you can sit in front of a piano and the notes aren't crazy. You can sit there and play the tune. And yet the most basic notes, the way that they put them together, followed with the most beautifully written lyrics to follow that music, all of a sudden turns you know, what, what is a very basic song into one of the most beautiful songs ever written. And then you can do the opposite and see somebody who runs their fingers up and down the piano and playing a thousand keys and just, you know, like you said, shredding it. And it, it's just not as good. And what you're sort of, well, so first of all, two things. First of all, the Beatles, I think their 10,000 hours is all this time they played in bars in Germany. Yeah. And so they're playing over and over and over and over and over and they're doing covers and covers and covers and they start thinking like, well, how can we, like, what interesting notes can we follow, like, dropping in here and there? Or they drop a sixth here. Or they flip the, you know, they don't just do, like, a one four five chord pattern. They flip something at the end. Or they do, like, a major seventh. And you're like, wow, that's a really interesting choice that they, you know, like, they pick the interesting one. But they had to do it for the, you know, theoretical 10,000 hours to even understand. They had to get the perfect form before they could break it. And I see the same thing in, in, in music with vocalists now where I think, I think it was probably, you know, the first iteration of American Idol in our country that did this. But now a good singer is considered someone who does this like, you know, it's like they fucking go up and down. It's like, and, and I think, I think to, that's very technically proficient, but is it art? Yeah. Because... You listen to like Etta James or Patsy Cline or you listen to any, you know, like amazing singer before that was in fashion. You go, no, they're just picking the right notes and they're able to convey emotion without having to do the claptrap of like, wow, they really arpeggiated the fuck out of their voice, didn't they? Let me ask you this question. Do you think that you can be... still hard to do, but it's just, I just don't know if it's art. But do you think you can be the greatest at something and not have the the you know, the given talent to just, yeah, you can practice it for 10,000 hours and then you're calling it artistry. Do you think that you're either born with it or you're not? Or do you think you can actually convert someone into, quote unquote, the greatest or one of the greatest by just teaching them how to do it? Or do you think in order to get to that extra level, you can be good, you can be good 10,000 hours, you'll be really good. It won't be art, but it'll be really good. But in order to be the best... And go into a conversation of greatest of all time, whether it be music, comedy, bowling, other sports. Nope, you just you had to have had it when you were born. I do. I do think that it swings. A, this is just my personal opinion. I think it swings a little more nurture than nature. But I think there are a lot of factors that go into you know that go into anything. I do think natural ability at a young age. You know, particularly with bowling, in my case, it it can make you lazy because if something comes very easily to you and you don't have to work that hard for it, then you don't have to work that hard for it. So I do believe that, um, that, that determination coupled with putting in the time 
having the right set of circumstances that make it possible for you to explore, you know, that. I, I do think that you can take someone and make them, you know, like if they put in enough hours. Now, is it, are they going to, you know, would you would you consider them like the greatest all t- of all time? I don't know, but maybe you can make them one of the best of their time. Will they live on forever? I don't know. I mean, we think of classical music and you... You think like, oh, people were so great back then. It's like, yeah, because you only remember Mozart, Bach, Schubert, Rachmaninoff. Like, you don't remember the countless number of people who were probably really good in their day, who put in their time, but for whatever reason just didn't transcend that last, whether it was a, you know, an unlucky set of circumstances (laughs) or a publicist, you know, or whatever, or, or whatever it was, you know. And so, I, but I do think that. It is a little more nurture than most people would. But we want to have this romantic idea of like, whoa, people, you know. Anyone can do it. Michael Jordan was just born with natural ability. But I think he would probably argue like, you don't see the amount of work that I put into this. Yes, he There's was, no debating he's about He's tall and, you know, like whatever. And that it was helpful. But like Tiger Woods, who knows? Was he nat- naturally technically proficient or did he just start at the right time in his life? He had the right coach. He was nurtured in the right ways. So many factors go into that. So many environmental factors go into it. There are more, more environmental factors than just putting in the practice. But did he have the right coach at a young age? Did he play the right courses? Did he, did he win the right tournament? Like it's, I, just, I do think it's a bit more environmental than it is just like, oh, this person just happens to be naturally brilliant at this thing. And that, to me, is interesting and both slightly upsetting at the same time because it sort of takes some of the mystique out of things that we think of, you know, like you look at someone who's amazing at something and what, what they really had was like a lot of determination, a lot of time, some luck, but you do tend to, in a lot of cases, generate your own luck. It's sort of like your the preparation of the time you put in meeting the right opportunity. Anyone, you know, like anyone can luck into a, a, an opportunity, but if they are prepared, if they are mentally prepared, you know, like you work really hard, you're mentally prepared, you're mentally strong so that when you have tournaments, you can average 229 and you can be bowler of the year. It's like your your opportunities were met with the preparation that you put into it. Uh, look, you probably you've convinced me otherwise. So prior to your answer right then, <laughs> I think I was probably leaning more towards. You can be really good at something, but if you don't have it within you from birth, you can't be great well, at it. Well, I'll tell you it. this. You have to want it. I think you have to have the desire for it because anything that requires that amount of work, you really have to live with. You can't just work nine to five and check out. You live with it. You Like you said, you get you get antsy if you don't bowl. It's just a part of your de- – that, like that part. Maybe it's the desire that you're born with or the – the inclination that you grow to need. It's part of the recipe. But you can't you have do, to have can't it to make it without the perfect the cake. Yeah, yeah. I think you, that's you couldn't the best be great way. without the authentic drive because you just wouldn't put in the any opportunity that you didn't have to be doing it. You wouldn't be doing it. You wouldn't be thinking about it. You I will say though, Chris, I don't think I don't think this applies to comedy. I think I think you're either funny or you're not. I don't think you can be not funny and then taught to be funny. People can write you jokes that are funny and you can just say them in a way that they're no longer funny but anymore. that's 100% nurture though because it's it's basically all personality. Like, you know, when I was born, my parents are both funny people. 
when I was a kid, Saturday Night Live had just launched. They noticed that I loved Saturday Night Live. They noticed I was fascinated with Steve Martin when he became a huge stand-up. So they started feeding it, buying me comedy albums. You know, they used to let me perform in front of their friends. You know, like it – that was the environmental opportunity of having the right parents who nurtured the right thing. And so I learned it because – that was that was inclination meeting the opportunity of being in the right. Like how many people might have had those inclinations when they were young and their parents are like, you can't watch that. They're swearing in it or comedy's dumb. You, and, and, and some people with seemingly everything against them achieve greatness. Some people need an opposing force. You know, I, w- I don't think I would have done well as a kid if I had had an opposing force. I was lucky to have a supportive force. But how many people do you meet like, you know, they have a lot of money or they have a lot of opportunity. They have a lot and they just fucking blow it all, yeah. you know. And then other people you think this person, there's no way this person, but on paper, this person shouldn't be great at this thing. And they find the time. They find the, the you know, they scrape the money. They find the energy when everyone else goes to bed. They're still up doing that thing. That's just the drive that they have within them, you know, and I, I, I don't know. So maybe that's what it is that you're born with. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe it's the drive that is, you know, authentic. to. No, I love that. I love that explanation because I, I did. I used to think I used to think because you know, kids would come up to me and, and, and adults and they'll say, you know, I want to be a pro bowl. How do I become a pro bowl? And in the back of my mind, I used to always think, well, we can get you to be really good. You know, I can teach you and you can do your 10,000 hours and you can be really good. But if you're going to be great, oh, I don't know. I used to think you're only born with it. Like it just, it's something that in within you. But now that you're saying it and you're, and you're translating it more as a, as a drive, as a determination, you know, everyone has that somewhere in them right. and someone needs to just you know maybe it is in in that scenario it's my responsibility to to kind of spoke that fire a little bit so the drive kind of comes out and it has its own life and then takes over but that is a beautiful way to look at it because then i think each and every one of us no matter what path or passion that you have as long as someone is is just you know pressing that button inside to to get you going to get that drive going even a comedian, I could, I could be a great comedian you if could. you would just nurture me a little more <laughs> in the Chris. right ways. Well, it's just it's something that I've been thinking a lot about, especially with piano, because before you start something like piano, and I'm, people probably say this to you all the time, oh, I could never be a professional bowler. They say, oh, I could never be a comedian, and I used to think like, well, I could never be a piano player. I see how fast people's hands move, like they just think in certain ways that I don't think. And then I started, I let all that go. I think I'm not going to be result oriented. I'm just doing it because it's fun. I'll just start practicing and see what happens. And then you realize after three months, six months, oh, some things get a little easier. Oh, okay. Like my body is starting to understand how this works and I'm making transitions easier and it's just happening without really having to think about it because I put in the time. You know, you watch a... I, I, I started – I was able to achieve that because I would watch a YouTube video of like a six-minute video of how some guy was like, I'm going to practice piano for a year and see what happens. And he would take video of it. And the first day, blah, 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 blah. And then after three months, it's like, oh, he's actually kind of playing in six months. And then a year of practicing every day for an hour and he sounds like he could be playing in a fucking, you know, like in a department store. And you realize like, oh, yeah, you just – you talk yourself out of so many things. And if you don't have the drive that really – the inspiration and the fire to really chase it, 
then you don't really have the motivation to push push back against your internal judge that tells you you're too shitty and stupid to do things. Yeah. And but but the drive makes you go fine. Maybe I'll be shitty and stupid, but I just love doing this thing, so I'm going to do it. And then in that process, you get good, you know? Yeah, and you need to have enough of that drive because especially when you start something new, you're going to suck at it yeah. and you're going to get frustrated yep. and you're going to say, oh, it's too hard. I can't, if, if we're taking piano as the example, it's I can't do that scale. My hand isn't quick enough or my fingers aren't wide enough. I can't reach those two notes. And then you give up and then, then you go into the same category as so many other people as failed whatever, failed right. musician, failed comedian, failed bowler. And the ones that seem to make it through, you always listen to that. And I bet you if, if we were to like document your life as a timeline, there are going to be these moments in your timeline that said he could have stopped here at this moment mm -hmm. and then Chris Hardwick, as we know him, would no longer exist. We wouldn't know who he is. Right. And instead, he's gone beyond that moment. And there would be multiple. And the same with me. So, you know... As a bowler, I haven't been, you know, a great bowler since the early days. I was always good, but there were moments where I'm like, man, this is costing me a lot of money leaving Australia, and I'm I'm getting beat up by, you know, some of these Asian tour bowlers, these European. How am I ever going to really succeed on the pro tour in the USA, where the greatest bowl, the most fierce bowlers are, and I can't win in these other parts of the world? So you have the crossroads. Everyone has those crossroads, and I tell people all the time. The ones that carry on are always the ones that get remembered. The ones that quit, you never know who they are. They yeah, exactly. A lot of it is just staying in the game because eventually, like, everything has ups and downs. But if you can stay in the game, you're already ahead of most people yeah. who will give up, fall out, sort of be forced out or whatever. And it it's very natural to say the things that you said to have the negative self-talk. I suck at this. I'm never going to be good. I'm never going to be good. And, you know, and I kind of think, like, that's fine, much in the way that I have to, like, not worry about telling myself to throw the ball soft and just sort of playing to my strength. I think it's okay for people to say, you know what, I know I'm going to talk shitty to myself and I'm just going to allow that to happen, but then I'm going to keep doing the thing anyway. Fine, I suck at this, maybe I'll never be good, but I'm going to keep doing it anyway. And eventually your brain shuts up because it's like, oh, okay, I guess... I guess we're continuing to do this right. and you can really, you, you, people allow themselves to talk themselves out of doing so many things because they think their brain is the final answer. But all your brain is, is a thing that's trying to help you. It's trying to protect you. It's trying to be exactly. It's yeah. trying to help you experience the least amount of stress and pain as possible. So if something is hard, it'll go, don't do this. Yeah. It's hard. What are you doing? You're an idiot. But it doesn't know. It doesn't, your, 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 your self-talk doesn't really usually think long-term. And so you have to, as human beings over animals, we have the ability to ignore our primal instincts and our self-talk and go, fine, but I'm going to keep doing this anyway. And I, because I own you, brain. <laughs> yeah, I want to know, <laughs> like, for me. I would love to know the, 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 the term overnight success. I want to know how many successful people are literally overnight successes. No one I have ever met went from Monday night, have been unsuccessful and then waking up having a great day Tuesday and now they're super successful Tuesday. That's like, the sort of fake romantic idea of But it, I don't know anyone that it's ever happened to. No, and you can also... There, well, in entertainment, certainly not in, 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 a, in a thing like bowling where there's a skill set, but entertainment is so vast and, and, and broad that you can... Um, 
you know, someone can go viral or someone can get a show or a movie and all of a sudden they're famous. But without all of the work they put into it before, they don't have the foundation of anything to fall back on. So those careers very rarely sustain because they have not built a foundation of sustainability. And so that's, you really don't want that to, you know, I almost had that. I I was like right out of college. I got a job at MTV in, in America and I was, I had this really popular show and then I didn't understand, I didn't have a body of work to fall back on. So when that show was done, it was, you know, almost 10 years before I started really working again because I had to then earn it back, you know, like you just putting in the work, it's never going to be disappointing because at the very end of the day, even if you're not the number one bowler in the world or the biggest this or the top that, no one can take away from you the work that you put into something and the experience and the journey and what it's made of you along the way. No one can ever take that away. So it 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 is interesting that, you know, with bowling, even how you said, you know, people watch the last five games or whatever – we we tend to watch things as highlight reels, mm. you know? Even most people, if they watch sports, they see the highlight reel. Look at that play, look at that play, or whatever. But, you know, to sit down and experience the thing as a whole, it's like work can be a very boring and unrewarding process. And so it's just not fun for people to think about that. They just want to they want to see the finished cake. They don't want to fucking see how, you know, the sugar going into the bowl and the milk. And, ah, fuck, <laughs> that's boring, you know? Like, I just want the fucking cake. It's, it's it's such a hard thing to to teach people because especially especially Patience. today especially today it's like immediate gratification everything society. is on demand everything I can download this immediately and you know what's funny I even talking about like I know we're kind of branching off a little bit here into download speeds but my children who are ten seven and nearly four if their Netflix series takes three seconds to they bounce three seconds to buffer i'm already going dad the internet sucks and i'm like just let it buffer like three seconds honey do you know when i was your age <laughs> you just have to go this what's that that's how the internet used to sound and your grandma used to pick up the phone when daddy was trying to download dirty pictures <laughs> So now trying to teach them patience is it's honestly been it's been I'm testing my own patience teaching them about patience because they have none. And now when I'm telling, yes, the next generation of bowler or next generation, whatever, that wants to pursue something, I think if you that's the key, that's the key to success as far as I'm concerned is you're calling it drive. You got to have that and the dedication. I'm saying add on top of that patience if you have it if you can withstand the shit that's going to come towards you that isn't gratifying immediately and that it's going to hurt and then it's going to it's going to suck for a little bit if you can have the patience to withstand that then have the drive and the motivation to carry on through it you'll make it whatever it is that you're trying to do because people don't have that anymore my well, children are perfect example. A, a, a lot of people don't, but it. But I still think those people. Those people are definitely out there. But you just cannot appreciate something you didn't work for. You just can't. You don't have the frame of reference. If something came easily to you, it's very difficult to appreciate it because you don't. You don't see the full scope of the architecture and the time that it, you know. So you just. So your kids don't have to work. They didn't have to work for internet. So they don't appreciate that, like, you can get anything you 
want in the history of entertainment at your finger. You can learn literally anything in the collected history of recorded history is in your fucking pocket. And you just like, they just can't grasp it because they didn't, you know, it's like when I had to, when I was writing a paper in college, you had to go to the library and check out the book. And if they didn't have the book, you might be fucked. I'm trying to distill this understanding to my kids is like, this isn't how it's always been. <laughs> but they're not, they're not going to understand that. But it's also interesting because you, um, you are based in Australia and even just today, your stopover in Los Angeles is like I'm exhausted just hearing about your schedule. You flew into LA this morning from Australia. You met me at Pins Bowling Center in Studio City, where we bowled five games. We came to do the podcast uh, at the studio. Then you're going to head to the airport, and at midnight you're going to fly to the east. You're going to take a red eye to the east coast to then bowl. What, like 50 games or something crazy? Not that many this time. It's a, it is a much shorter invitational event. But one of the things that I've had to, I guess, balance with my schedule is it's not just me anymore. And when it was just, I, I have uh, my wife, Kimberly, we've, we've been married 12 years, but we've been together since August 26, 2000. I'll never forget that day because I did one time and I learned my lesson. <laughs> That's and I will never forget August twenty sixth. Appreciate yes, now. That I appreciate. It's good to know I that have day. earned that. Yeah. So, um, we've been together for a really long time, and I I would say to her, I can be away from you, and we can communicate, and we can talk, and it's not it's not unbearable. I mean, it, it gets to a point where it becomes unbearable if it's too long. But a week, two weeks. I, we can, I mean, if your relationship is pretty strong, I think you can last two two weeks without seeing somebody. So it was always easy. Now with children, I don't know what it is. It's, it is really, really difficult. There's a very different kind of love. I love my, I would die for my wife. I would die for my children. But it seems to be like once that two week, that two week mark happens, communicating with them is different. It's harder. I miss them severely. So my scheduling now has changed. It used to be, you know what, I'm going to head over a couple of days earlier, honey, just so I can get, you know, acclimatized with the the time zones or maybe it's the winter over here and it's summer back home. So I would like to get acclimatized to the weather before I'm, you know, leaving, you know, 110 degree heat in Oz and then coming into, you know, 23 degree heat here. Um, that's Fahrenheit for any Australians listening. I tried to do the conversion for everyone. You did Celsius, so you said 23 degrees. No, I said 100 degrees. Oh, 100 degrees, yeah, that's, that's Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it would be like 42 degrees Celsius back home and then coming here and it'd be minus 10. So I would take those extra days. And then coming home, you know, when you bowl these grueling tournaments back-to-back weeks, sometimes it's nice to just take a day and just relax. Well, now my schedule is... What is the latest that I can leave, right? And what is the earliest that I can get back? And, and you immediately show up and you immediately start doing the thing that you need to be focused and fit and healthy for. And I have to. Like, yep. that's just, that's part of the deal. So seeing you today, would I have enjoyed coming in yesterday and, you know, taking a night at a hotel, you know, maybe getting a massage? Yeah, I yep. would have loved that. Yep. But instead, it's like... Um, you know, I had my children's um, school, their final week of school. So we had these school awards that I went to and that was the night before I left. So I couldn't leave earlier, even if I wanted to. Um, and I, I guess it's something that you just, 
I don't know, it's, it's a new part of my life that I'm having to learn. Like once upon a time, it's like, how do I make the ball go straight? How do I hit my target every time? And that was a skill that I was practicing. And now a new skill is how do I land after a 16-hour flight changing to a 19-hour time difference at a different season of the year and then expect to go and start winning championships? And it has been probably one of the most difficult skills to learn is sleeping when I land or sleeping on the plane so I can land and, and have some kind of functionality. It's And I, I think we were talking about it too, like when you're touring in, in particular, traveling is not glamorous. No, you know, it's no, It's not no. like it's a comfortable thing to do. You so, are preserving every ounce. Like I want when I go to cities, I want to go do a bunch. People go, oh, you got the whole day. You don't have to work until the night. You know, when you're doing stand-up, you're the whole day. It's like I'm resting because I... I, I don't usually stay up past, you know, I have to stay up to 1, one thirty in the morning because I do two shows. We do meet and greets after the shows. You know, the second show ends at midnight, 1230. Then I'm there for another hour, like saying hi to people. And I'm just not used to doing that in my normal life. And so like all day long, I'm just trying to force myself to stay asleep, to take naps because I need the energy, you know. Yeah, and you have to, it's a skill now. So that's part of my routine <laughs> is learning how, okay, what part of the world am I flying to? Right. I better find out how many hours difference. When is the right time to be eating and sleeping? So I can acclimatize to that, that region faster. And luckily for me, that... I think I've got it down pretty good for the US. So coming in on a day like today, flying in at 6.30, 7 in the morning, doing what I got to do, coming, seeing you, bowling some games, doing a podcast, flying out. It's so much easier now because I've worked it out. I understand how many hours I must get sleep on the plane. I know when I should start sleeping and when I shouldn't start. I know when I land, what time should I be eating straight away? So my body clock says, oh, you're eating. It's lunchtime. Okay, we're going to get you into like that lunch phase and then you're going to eat again. So as soon as we're done with this, I'm going to make sure that you know I get my food into me at the right time. I'm not going to wait till I get quote unquote hungry because then it'll be too late. It'll be 1 a.m. and now I'm starting to get starving. Then I'll eat. And then I'll be awake for the next. But those are all the things that separate people who are at the top of their field from people who are just good at things like anyone else who didn't put that level of thought, which, again, is based on the fact that you have that level of drive because you want you love this thing that you do and you want to, you know, like you want to excel at it. The fact that you have to think about all those things and do think of and and welcome that type of thinking is because I think most people forget that. Many, not all things, but more things than they would be willing to admit are the result of micro choices that they make all day long. Mm -hmm. You know, someone might not even think to do all those things. They go, yeah, you know, I used to be number one, but the travel just got to me and they just don't really think about it. And then that's that. And then their minds, they go, oh, it was the travel. Versus the person who's like, okay, how do I make this work? Well, I need to show up at these times. I need to eat here, here, here. I need to exercise this, this. Like, you live it. And that's the, that's the, that's the thing. That, those, those types of micro choices are the things that... Now, you can't control like, uh, you know, a oh, shark, you know, attacked me. And now I can't bowl anymore. You know, like, <laughs> I can not go in the water. The, yeah, you can not go in the water. Again, that's another micro choice. So it's... it's you know, you can't control everything, but you can control how you respond to things. You can control the majority of your, you know, like what you do in a day 
And so making good choices to set the table so that you can perform when you need to perform. And I think that I think that's kind of the, what the, the, the last frontier of separating people who are good versus people who are great at things. Yeah, I wonder if it comes down to the experience of failing at something. So, look, don't get me wrong. I, I wasn't always uh, thinking like this, in particular with travel. There were a few times where I'm like, oh, you know what, I'm just going to leave the day before and I'm going to go and rock up to this bowling tournament and I'm going to do really well. And then the first time I do it, I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing very well. Right. And then the second time, I'm like, oh, I'm sure I'll, I'll feel better this time. And I don't do very well the second time. And then that's where I think the difference is between me now than compared to what what I could have been in, in terms of a negative thing. If I had continued to stay that way, but I saw, right, this is a negative thing that is happening to my performance based on my scheduling. Okay, how am I going to better this? And you can say that for anything. This joke was terrible, mm-hmm. right? It has bombed the last two times. i got to rewrite it. i got to redo it so it doesn't bomb again. It's the same as like when I'm going to these tournaments, I have to make sure... Listen, you've already gone there two times, three times, five times, and you've done all the wrong things, and you've, you've, you've screwed it up every time. You can't do it a sixth time. And if you do, you're an idiot. <laughs> and you're done. I know we've been talking about patience, but you know the other thing that I am struggling with? Hmm. Priorities. I don't know how to prioritize. I see everything and want to do everything. Whether it be career, because I'm I'm actually taking my bowling brand, Belmo brand, and like for example, you can probably see I'm wearing yeah. some merch today. Yeah. Um, I have a video game that I've made. I've got a documentary that I'm making. I've got some other bowling products that I'm looking to come out. I want to start. Um, you saw one today. I got a bowling ball. Mm-hmm. I now make. So all of these opportunities are stepping in front of me, and. I think that's the next lesson that I'm trying to learn. The next P, right? Patience been the first. The next one been priorities. And I'm struggling to work out, I don't want to miss out on anything. So I do everything. And then I realize I'm actually hurting everything. Uh, well, I have a lot. I, so I have a lot to say about that, which is, it's a great, it's a great question to bring up and sort of going, just going back. I'm, I'm going to write down priorities because I want to, I want to loop back around to it. Um, but, uh, so, in sort of talking about achieving greatness before, I just want to let people know you don't have to be the best at whatever it is that you're – you don't have to. You, it's okay if you're not. You really – the best that you can do in life, instead of worrying about the rest of the world, what other people are doing, you're really just, you know, in competition with yourself yesterday. Can I be better today than I was yesterday? I think that's the most anyone can really ask or hope for and it's okay to not – it's okay just to do things because you like them and this loops back into priorities because we don't talk enough in our culture about – we talk a lot about achieving success but very few people at least publicly I think talk about maintaining success and what it means to be successful and what it does to you. Because I have a friend who's – and I've been through it too. But I have a friend who's going through the same thing where her career is really taking off in a big way. And she's getting all these opportunities. And, you know, here she is in this position where it's like, oh, my God, this is what I had always hoped for. And I can't – I'm not – I can't say that I feel great. You know, like you have this idea you're going to get all these opportunities and all of a sudden, oh, you you know, you're going to feel whole and you're going to feel like you're enough and you're going to feel like you achieved everything. But what actually happens is 
uh, at least with most people, and certainly has happened with me in the past, is it's incredibly stressful. There's a lot of responsibility. You don't know what to say yes to, what to say no to. You feel like you're being pulled in a million different directions, and then everything suffer you know it's like when the water level goes up in one area everything goes up but when it goes down it goes down everywhere so if you're spreading yourself too thin you're not focused enough on your you know if your brain is like i gotta think about this app i gotta think about the clothing line what and now i have to think about distribution you know yeah and so at a certain point you have to really sit down and have a serious heart-to-heart with yourself about what do you want what's important yeah i have to get past the fear of of missing missing the whale right missing that one thing that Turns out to be a huge opportunity, a huge inv- a huge financial boost, a huge personal achievement, whatever it is. I- I'm so paranoid that if I say no to something, there's this, there is this fear that I've just said no to what quite possibly could have been something massive. Yes, but if you say yes to too many things, then you might not be in the right headspace to get that moment because you were too stressed about too many things. Exactly. Yeah. And this is like the circle that I'm in that I'm... Like it, I guess at some point you just have to say no and, and live with it. You what you have to what I uh, yes you have to say no and live with it. Also, I mean I don't know you you know you don't know what's going to work and what's not going to work. The best that you can do is follow what you care about. So if you start getting into all these side hustles, of, you know it's like uh, oh we're gonna you know I'm gonna make bowling let's say bowling shoes or whatever. At a certain point, you might go, I don't really give a shit about bowling shoes. That's not interesting or fun to me. I'm doing it because I'm chasing money or ego or or, fame or whatever it is to make sure that my name lives on or whatever it is. And then just decide, like, is the amount of mental drain and responsibility that I will have to take on to do that, is it worth it? If I don't pursue that one thing... You know, will I be happier? You know, and so I think you really need to start thinking about happiness, not just for you, but for your family and your kids. And are you going to be in the right headspace when you're home to be attentive the way they need you to be? And so, I I mean, sometimes in as much as I think there's this idea that bigger is always better and expanding is always better and scaling up is always better. I think I'm coming to a part of my life where I feel like, no, it's actually better to scale down and just put more focus and heart into the things you really care about. Because... We're all going to be dead someday. It doesn't matter. Like, it's like in a hundred years, it's not going to matter if you made bowling balls or not. If you're not passionate about, you know what I mean. I'm not saying that you're not passionate about that. I just mean like when you're sort of looking at all the opportunities you have. But because we're always in our heads, the you know ourselves from like age 15 or 16, we think we think of ourselves. We can think of ourselves as constantly in a space of struggle, and it's like, well, I have to take everything that's offered to me because. What if I never get another opportunity? It's, I mean, it's possible, but it's also you're not really evolving with what your situation really is. You know, like you you really kind of need to think about, you know, what's going to preserve your happiness more. And I think that's how you make those decisions. You look at everything and go, is the amount of responsibility I'm going to have to take on to achieve this thing? Is it worth it? Do I have the passion to keep it going? Because it's definitely going to take attention away from the stuff that you are passionate about. You just said about. something that just really struck a chord with me. Is like, does it give me happiness? So I, I'm prepared to leave my family and my home for more than six months of the year to go and, and do a sport that I love because it makes me happy. Mm-hmm. I'm prepared to do that. I'm not prepared 
to take extra days and times away for me to be doing something else that isn't providing an equal happiness for me. And I think that's probably something that I need to focus more on, right? So, you know, it sounds so funny. Like within five minutes, you've probably cured me because, <laughs> because I... I I think you're right. The fear of not doing something, the 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 result that it's going to to give me is not happiness. That's not why I'm a, I'm going after these merchants. Like it doesn't make me happy that I have a new merchandise. Everything line. you take on is more work and responsibility. And the thing that drives you through that work and responsibility is is the fire that's lighting it strong enough. Is the passion strong enough? To push you through all of the parts that are going to be annoying and boring and 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 irritating and get in your way. With bowling, you don't think about that stuff because you love it. Yeah. So you don't think about like, oh, I'm going to have to practice. I'm going to, you're just like, oh, I can't wait to get out there. If you're like, you know, if you get into the manufacturing business, you're probably like, you're probably not like, I can't wait to get into that factory and watch those <laughs> things. You know, it's just like, okay, now I have to worry about how many. And not, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do those things, but. You know, like is the is the is the drive monetary, and if it is, that's okay. But you just have to know that that's you're going to have to sacrifice a certain amount. Is the sacrifice worth it to achieve that? That's right. But I have a friend who I've known for twenty some years, and he created. A, I don't want to call him out, even though I think this is one of the most profound things I've ever heard. But he created a very successful show. And what was the show called? I'm not going to tell you because I don't want to because it'll just then you'll just it'll just know who he is exactly. And then create a very successful show. He's a really nice guy, and um, and that show was successful. And he's got another show on right now that's that's getting a lot of heat, and he really loves it. And we were having lunch, you know, not that long ago, and he goes, you know, I guess maybe like six or seven years ago, he said I was offered like the Empire Keys, where someone came in and they were going to, you know, like make him into another J.J. Abrams type. He was going to get this Empire and an overall thing and oversee a bunch of this and oversee a bunch of that. And he goes, you know, I just turned it down because I realized I'm happiest when I'm just focusing on one thing. I go, I do my one show. I don't have to worry about anything else. I'm hyper-focused on it, but I still have time and presence for my family because he has a couple of kids. And I just thought, like, that's so antithetical to the rest of the business, entertainment in particular, where we're conditioned to think, like, yeah, yeah, you got to always scale up. You, If you're not scaling up, you're dying. And to me, I think it was such a healthy choice because he recognized that the empire was not going to make him happier. He's like, how much money do I need? How much acclaim do I need? That doesn't – those are external things. They don't make you happy. You have to translate those into happiness and they can, they're fluid. They come and go. You're not <laughs> – you know – but he made the choice that he was going to actually scale down because he knew that that ultimately life is about being happy and present and being whole and and he was able to do that and that completely changed my outlook on everything just hearing just like hearing someone do that yeah and i mean that's especially in the entertainment industry that's a very brave move because it's not something that is done normally like you look at actors and comedians and musicians and typically when they're hot you see them everywhere doing everything all at once because that seems to be the norm so to hear someone say eh, i don't want the empire it, it must have been a shock to whoever offered the empire it must have been like i'm sorry I, did you say no well my god no is like the most powerful word in the world because when people are offering you things they expect you to say less but uh, say yes but if you can say no to things then no one can control you because it's so easy to be controlled by money, by fame, by ego things, by, by you know, like whatever sort of internal baggage you have about having to be better than everyone else. But if you just don't, 
you know, if you don't give a shit about any of that stuff, then no one can really control you. And again, that is a fairly privileged point of view. People do have to do things that they don't love to survive. I'm not talking about meeting basic survival needs, but when you get past basic survival needs and then a little bit more so that you're yeah, when you have choice, when you have choices, you know, like that's really the most success you're ever going to have in life, because the more stuff you have the more stress and responsibility you have too. Yeah. And is it worth it? So I don't know. Those are some things to think about. You may actually just have to like write everything down and pros and cons and then, you know, and then kind of do that Marie Kondo thing with everything like, oh, this other thing doesn't bring me joy. I'm going to get rid of it so that yep. there's room for areas where I should No, be I like that. Joy. I like you. So you have the P for patience that you need. And then I think the P for priorities is, yeah, the priority isn't just about happiness. It, it is. And I mean, yes, it is. But you need to survive. You, need, you have to provide for your family. So there is a financial priority. And when you're working your priorities out and – I'm going to speak more specifically to me. I think that's the key is, right, where, what is my list of things that I'm doing that make me abundantly happy? Like going to bed at night knowing I did those things, I'm the happiest I'm ever going to be. And then on the other side, how many of those correlate with a financial gain? And then how many of the other side of the priorities are purely it's making you money? That's it. That's the only reason. Well, that's reason also that important there. for you. I mean, it's like in theory, I could be a comedian for the next 50 years. In theory, like I could, you know, barring health issues or whatever. But when you do something that's physical, you're not going to be the same bowler in 40 years. Like you can't. And also, I'm kind of curious to hear about what it means to you to be like at the top of your field, to be to have be referred to as like, oh, he's bowler. He's number one bowler right now. You know, are, are you always looking over your shoulder? Like you always know there's going to be someone younger, stronger who's studying you, who's going to figure out how to, you know, how to improve That's in, a really the, in, the, in the same way that you did over my dad's generation. You know, like you improved over my dad's generation. And so there's going to be another generation. The, the good thing for me is there is a, there's a history of sports, not just in bowling, but in sports. There There is always someone new coming through to take out your favorite tennis player, your favorite rugby player or football player. And and you see that happening not just in your own industry but in someone else's industry. So there is an understanding of when you are uh, an athlete or you're doing something of physical nature in which you're going to eventually become redundant because of your age. Yeah. Right? There has to be an understanding like you've got to be ready for that. Now, as a bowler, where I think I'm very lucky is I can be in my – you know, late 30s, early 40s, and still be very competitive, still be top of my game, still be the best in the world. There aren't too many sports that you can be 37, like I'm 36 years old now, mm -hmm. I just won the player of the year. Mm -hmm. So even if I were to start coming down from the top now, I have a few more years where I should be, you know, relatively successful. Yeah. But you're right, the priority and thinking of what's going to create happiness is well i might be really happy for the next three or four years when the career is going great and then i've got to start planning which is i guess is the third p oh wow okay? so this, this podcast is full of p another, another podcast word yeah <laughs> and now planning yeah so i guess that's the a critical thing and you're God. right i think if, if you don't have those three things in mind at some point, you will hit a wall. Well, yeah, because, you know, I'm not a sports guy. I don't really know, you know, which I've said a million times, but I really don't. But I do want, I do know that, that that sort of cautionary tale of, like, you know, college athlete gets thrown into whatever sort of major league and whatever that field is. They make $100 million, and then in 15 years, it's all gone because, 
they didn't know, they didn't plan, they didn't save, they didn't have the right people in their life who weren't, you know, taking their money or whatever, and they thought it was going to last forever. And it's the it's the people, you know, the men and women who are able to look beyond that short window of time that they have and plan for that. Do you know? Do I open car dealerships? Do I go into politics? Do I do that? You know, and even just sort of think a little bit long term about about what's next. So it, that I do understand that you're also probably wrestling with a little bit of that too. You know, do I create this brand that's separate from that's not me directly bowling, but do I create a clothing line? Do I, you know, balls or whatever, so that when I do retire someday, there's a machine in place that sort of keeps everything going for my family and so that I can be comfortable because, you know, as a professional athlete, the majority of your life, if you live long enough, you're not doing the thing. You only get to do that for, you know, a short window of time in your life and you could live another 60 years, you know? So what do you do with those last, you know, 40 of them or 50 of them? No, you got to so, be smart. Yeah. And, and that's like, listen, I've got some long flights ahead of me. i got to fly back home in a couple of days. I know exactly what I'll be doing. I'll be turning on that light, annoying the passengers sitting next to me while they try to sleep. And I'm writing all this stuff down because, you know... I came here before this podcast with these, you know, uh, underlining stresses and pressures, not knowing what was going to happen. And and I'm not joking, Chris. Like, I feel like I at least now have a much clearer thought process. Right. I'm even if I even if I don't know exactly what it is that I'm going to do. At least I feel like I'm on a path now where I can be like, let's be a little bit more uh, focused you know, in those areas, in in the priorities and in the planning. And let's say when I do all this thinking, if if nothing happens, the only thing sorry, if the only thing that happens is that I feel better yeah. <laughs> about it, that's a plus. Like that's a win for me. Is if I can write it all down and go, oh wow, okay, let's here are my lists and I, I feel like I can plan and prioritize and I'm gonna have patience in these areas. Oh, I feel better, and that's going to be just enough for me for a win. <laughs> One of the three P's. Well, you know, my, um, you know, if my dad were still alive, he would talk to you all you wanted about stuff. But I can tell you, I can relay some of his experiences to you, which is that you know because he didn't think in this way. I mean, he was an overthinker for sure, but he just didn't have the right resources, and so he couldn't get out of his own way sometimes. And you know, like he and he retired at thirty four, and when he opened his bowling center in Memphis in nineteen eighty. One, I think. 81? Yeah, I think it was 81. Still there. All-Star Lanes, Memphis, Tennessee. I remember he didn't know what he was going to do. We lived on the road mm-hmm. when I was a kid because he, we were just having – and he hated flying, so we drove everywhere. We would go live in a small town somewhere where he would, like, give bowling clinics or whatever or coach someone. And so we lived this very sort of transient lifestyle because he kind of, like, blew through his money and, you know, like, through marriages or whatever and bad investments just because he just wasn't trained to think in those ways, and especially back in those days. And so when he opened his bowling center, he in, you know, when he was 40, he said, if I didn't get the loan for the bowling center that day, I could not have taken us to dinner at McDonald's. He just happened to, and because he knew the bowling business well, and you know, he made mistakes, but he learned. He had a name for himself. He was able to capitalize on that, and it was a a lot of hard work, and it took him a long time to get out of debt. You know, decades, but he ultimately achieved that, and um, and so it just he had to learn that way, you know. But even then, 
he still figured it out. Like, I think we forget a lot of the time because we always catastrophize and think of the worst-case scenario. In general, we tend to be more resourceful than we give ourselves credit for when the fire is lit. And in his case, the fire was lit. He didn't know what he was going to do. But he figured it out. Before that, you, he probably would have said, like, I don't know. I think I might be finished. But in in the face of, you know, it's this or that or, you know, survival, he was able to figure it out. So you'll figure, you'll figure it out. I mean, it... it if, if you have any que- – you know, you said when you first met me you had questions about my dad. I will tell you anything – if you have any lingering questions, I'm happy to tell you anything about him if there's anything that you're curious about. Oh, there's a thousand things. I, I could – I mean I don't necessarily want to – There are some things I probably couldn't – like I wouldn't have the – like if it was about, you know, like technique or whatever, I couldn't really tell you that. No, it, for me it was more about un- understanding the game, right? I, and – we live in different eras, but he was he was great. So how he saw the game, it's still 10 pins. It's still a ball been rolled at 10 pins. How he saw it can be translated into how I see it. And then I know that if there were, if I could, yeah, pick his brain or maybe go through you and ask like, you know, did he ever talk about the way the pins fell a certain way? Would, would he ever talk about, you know, I'm going to try to get the ball to to hit light, for example, consistently? Well, he and- never talked about those things with me because by the time I was old enough, he I was born when he was 30 and he retired at 34. And so I wasn't around him bowling enough. And I only actually ever saw him bowl a handful of times. There was a period... You know, when the bowling center was still struggling, that he realized, like, oh, well, if I bowl, it might attract people. And so he started bowling in a league for a very brief period of time. But then it just frustrated, like, because he was like, I don't have the heart for the, to it's be a different as, environment. He's like, I don't, like, I used to have the drive, and the drive is gone. And if I can't be as great as I was, I would rather have people talk about me as being great rather than, like, oh, you know, he was okay. I saw him bowl. But I will tell you this. He like I think what what made him what ascended him to the top of his field was that for whatever reason, for whatever sort of physiological or you know psychological reason, when he had a ball in his hand and he was on the approach, he had the most incredible focus, and people would talk about it was one of the things that I think was kind of legendary about him is that people would talk about when he was bowling, that's what he was doing. You couldn't shake him. He, you know, in life he was a kind of an, you know, like stressy and neurotic and overthinker. He was, you know, anxiety, depression, all those things. But when he was bowling, it just all melted away. And so it was for him, it was, you know, he had everything going against him. He had rheumatoid arthritis from the time that he was 12. And he was told that by the time he was 30, he wouldn't be walking. And and I told you that when he first started bowling, he bowled with his with his um, index finger instead of his two middle fingers. He bowled with his thumb, his index, and his middle finger. I mean, it, yeah. And so he had this claw grip because that's how he had to survive. So maybe that was part of what his drive was is that he had to work harder than most people who didn't have that affliction that he had his whole life. And and he just figured out a way to shut everything else out and and focus all of his energy. And he never told you how he did that? How he was able to step on the approach and have that focus that was so specific to what he was doing in the moment? Because I think in those days it was like well maybe it's not different now, but for him it was just all about his survival. He knew that the second year that he went back out on the tour, if he didn't figure it out and focus, 
then he was he wasn't going to survive. Right. So something in him, it was a determination and a survival. Maybe some physiological brain stuff that you know. I mean, you know, part of being anxious or depressed or neurotic or whatever is is being unnaturally focused is just having an overactive brain. And he was just able to condense that laser into this one thing. And I think for him, it was just therapeutic, you know, um, it, it, it was his escape from everything, all the other stresses in his life. It's where he could like shove everything else out of the way. And I think it's also one of the reasons why he drank as much as he did, you know, like it throughout his life. Cause he was just trying to, in the times that he wasn't on the approach, silence the voice and yeah. the vo- you know like that that nagging gnawing thing in his head that was probably his dad being shitty to him when he was growing up just that you know like you're never good enough you're not good enough you suck you know you're never and so my grandfather was a guy who didn't pursue his dreams and so i think he was very oppressive to my dad because yeah, and jealous straight. and jealous because his friend my grandfather's friends would be like oh billy's and like ah you know and I think on some level, my grandfather was proud of him, but he just had difficulty expressing that. Sure. So, you know, my dad would go home and my dad would be like, oh, you know, I'm open in a bowling center. Yeah, what are you, you're too fucking stupid on a bowling center. And my dad would be like, God damn it. You know, every fu- I know he's going to do it and it fucking gets me every time. And so I think for him, it was also an escape from that. But I would say that his game, from my estimation of it, he would probably say, yes, I'm sure there were technical things that he did, mm. ways that, that he gamed the lanes or ways that he had to throw a rubber ball on wooden lanes and with the oil patterns that they had at the time, throwing the ball high, throwing the ball light, you know, going out, you know, playing the first five boards or whatever. But in general, I think he would probably tell you that, like, you know, that almost all the game for him was mental because he did not have the physicality to fall back on the way that most people do that don't, you know, he couldn't bend his fucking arms all the way. Like he could not straighten his arms for his almost his whole life. And he still found a way to, to, to do it. So I think it was just, it was just mental focus. Yeah. I think if I was, um, and that's so awesome to hear, to be honest, because, (laughs) you know, I get to watch old footage now and usually the thing that I can see as a as a player in today's game, and you know, you're always trying to learn, no matter who you're watching. You you see Billy Hardwick on the approach, and he didn't really seem to get intimidated. You know, no, never really seemed to get like scared. You know, and there are players, and I've been in those situations where it's almost like I want my opponent to miss. I want them to miss so bad, so the pressure is off me. You know, and early in my career, I had that that philosophy of let's just get out to a really quick start. Let's just win by, let's lead by a lot. So when it comes down to the crunch, uh, it doesn't matter anymore. And then you don't have to worry about the pressure. It's gone. And and that was never any good because that's not how sports works. That's not how bowling works. You do not win every single game by hundreds of pins. You, you sometimes have to win by throwing a strike right now. And, and you could have one bad frame. And it's over. Like, and yeah. lose a whole game. You could just, like, you know, like, bucket a shot. And it's like, oh, my God. You know, you... J- Especially depending on what frame it is and what you need. You can mathematically knock yourself out from as early as the fifth or sixth frame. So there are so many pressure-filled moments. And I was so scared of them. And then the reason why I'm bringing this up and, 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 and like why and how he got to that focus was because I think I'm learning it. I'm getting better at it. There are still moments that I feel it and I, I'm scared. I'm like, oh man, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm going to throw a good shot. I don't know if I can throw a good shot here. I feel like the moment is too big and I can't handle it. 
But when I watch the 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 Hall of Famers of the of the past, you never I never really saw that out of them. It, it almost seemed like they preferred that moment. They actually wanted the moment to be close to give them the opportunity to step up, and and that's something that I'm trying to develop into my own game. Instead of being fearful of that moment, I I kind of want to embrace it and say no 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 let it be this way because. It's gonna feel so much better. I think when you, he just wasn't. I think he just wasn't competing with anyone else. He was just focused on his game. You know, I, there's footage on YouTube of. I mean, I've seen. I was gonna do a documentary about him like 20 years ago, where I thought, oh, what a great way to get to know your father. I'm gonna like go to all the houses that he used to perform. That perform. They used to bowl at. I'm gonna find all this old footage of him and sort of walk through like you know, at the time and the in you know before the internet was really a thing. You, you know, you didn't you didn't really see a lot of footage of your parents when they were young. You just None. you just didn't see any. You might see old pictures now. Everyone's on video and whatever. But then I thought it would be like a real fun journey. And so there's like I've seen I saw him bowl back to back three hundreds in Japan and like the you know like the emperor's nephew like like you know took them out. I mean, there was a period of time in the sixties where bowlers were treated like premier athletes. Yeah, like the way that. You know, basketball players, football players are treated now like it was a thing. Yeah, the first million dollar contract in in U.S. sports was to Don Carter. He was the very first athlete. No baseballer, no NFL player, no um, hockey, no basketball, no other sport in the history <laughs> at that time had a player endorsed a million dollar contract. I got a funny story about him. Don Carter was the first. My my dad. You know, Don Carter was a bit older than my dad, so my dad obviously looked up to him, and they would travel, you know, together, and, you know, he's one of my dad's idols, and uh, he said, you know, one time, this was like years and years and years ago, just giving me relationship advice when I was like in college or something, and my dad goes, you know, Don Carter told me once um, that uh, you can't have a relationship and work, and a career, one is going to suffer over the other. He said, because I was going through, you know, like a bad marriage and not to my mom, but to, a, you know, an earlier wife. And, and he said, you can't have career and, and a relationship. He said, my dad goes, what I didn't realize is at the time, Don Carter was sleeping with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So this guy, his idol gives him this advice that he takes to heart. Like, well, I guess I can't have career. And it's like, What? And then he finds out later on, like, he was... Yeah. Dude, Don Carter was a dick. <laughs> <laughs> I, but, didn't, I didn't know that about but that, Don But that, that was kind of the thing. I mean, and this is told to me as my dad. I'm not trying to slander anyone, but this is the story that my dad told me. And, you know, listen, for better or for worse, I think my dad, my dad's generation was the walk it off generation. Yeah. We are the let's go to therapy and talk about our feelings all the time generation. Now, is one better than the other? I prefer now. I happen to think supporting mental health is a positive thing. The benefit that you might have seen in those days is that, you know, yes, he was able to focus all of that n- nervous energy, but into a laser beam when he was bowling and that made him a better bowler. But... The sum total of that was that it made the rest of his life a mess because they didn't know how to deal with shit. So they drank yeah. or they screwed around or they did drugs or they did whatever it is they were doing because they just didn't – they didn't really have mental health awareness. I much prefer now. But, you know, again, that was the – well, your, fo- your foot's broken. Fucking walk it off, pussy. You know, like now – like I would not have wanted to live back. I mean I prefer now. So – you know, I, I think that might also for him. It was just like he had no choice. If he if he wanted to survive, if he wanted to eat that week, 
he had to focus and win. He just had to, you know, be the best version of himself every time he stood in the approach. In the 70s, his game started to descend because he just couldn't maintain that level anymore. And younger guys were doing it. Younger guys were doing it. Lane conditions changed. Like, things started evolving. They started changing conditions away from what he excelled at. And he didn't have the focus and the and the and the mental energy and the mental health energy to adapt. Well, we're we're really lucky. I mean, to live in a in a, a time where we know so much more about things. You know, mental health, the brain. How can I release some of that stress without going to the bottle, without going to a drug? You know, I can talk now, and I can. I, there are techniques that I can learn to calm myself down. I mean. I would imagine if your dad were a today's generational bowler, I would have to think with the resources that he would have had access to now, you know, his career would have been even better. Maybe, but you still see a lot of people get super fucked up because even though those resources are available, maybe he wouldn't have, you know what I mean? And again, it's whether it's comedy or bowling or golf or, you know, whatever, you know, painting, banking, whatever it is. Ultimately, it's, you know, my trainer, I've had the same fitness trainer for 14 years, and he has this thing uh, called line speed beauty. I used to boxing train. I used to box train with him when I first started. Now it hurts my wrist, so I just don't do anymore because they get older. But with anything, he says, first you have to learn the line. You have to learn the basics. Then once you do that, then you learn how to do it fast. You get the speed and then you create the art with it. Then you create the beauty. You have to learn. You have to become an expert at something so that you can break the mold and be artistic about it. But ultimately, I think what we're all trying to achieve is being in that zone. You know, the zone where everything just is the flow state. And I, the more I think about it, the more I, I really just think all that is is just a moment of pure presence. It's that moment in the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie where he goes to school and Flash Thompson punches the locker, but everything just slows down to spider time. It's the most, it's, it's being as purely present as you can possibly be. But it takes a lot of energy to do that, to release everything. So I don't know. Um, my, you know, somewhat solicited advice to you is just make sure that, you know, every, <laughs> everything you're doing is worth it and that you're, that, you know, that the sacrifices are worth whatever the rewards are that you want those rewards. Yeah, don't worry. I'm I'm going to take a lot away from this conversation like Oh, it's been so great, Jason, and I can't tell you how much it was an honor to bowl with you today. I don't take it lightly. I mean, like you're the best at what you do and, you know, and I I grew up around bowlers and I still, you know, like uh I and I still came away with it going like I wish I could have bowled better. Damn it. <laughs> Chris Today wasn't the only opportunity, okay? This wasn't a one and done. I mean, it may have taken three years for the first opportunity to happen. I would hope that the second time around, we don't have to wait so long. Well, the irony is that only people in LA will get what I'm about to say, but I probably have a better chance of bowling with you again than someone who lives in, say, Santa Monica. Now, the reason that's funny if you live in LA is because our city is very divided and there are people who live west of the 405, that I never see anymore. So it, it, it makes sense that I will probably... I'm, what I mean is that I'm hopeful that this will happen sooner rather than later. Yeah, Because uh, it, it just... It was, it was fun. I, I almost makes me want to like go out and practice a little bit. Build up the callus so next time when you're in town, I can bowl five games, no problem. Yeah, well, we can also get you a new ball. You know, that ball that you had today, a little older. The technology is a little older. I mean... 
Listen, if I'm going to be using the latest and greatest stuff in our matches, it's probably fair <laughs> you that even you the should, field. should even the playing field. So I'll make sure that I get you some brand new stuff. We can have it all drilled. You can practice with it a little bit. And the next time I fly through Los Angeles, you know, let's do this again. I would love, I would love to. to. Um, what are you looking forward to in 2020? Uh, I want to be the player of the year again. That's that's a goal of mine. I want to. Uh, I really want to live in the moment. You know, I'm just taking away from this conversation today and understanding that the things that I've experienced in my life, I think I need to to reassess the moments that I'm living and be really appreciative of each of those moments. And then going to the three P's, like, you know, I really want to be patient next year. I want to be able to build on whatever it is that I'm trying to build on, whether it be my career on the lands or my businesses off the lands. I really want to prioritize better. So yeah, I'm giving more of a percent, more of a closer to a hundred percent on less things. So they are successful and they are making me happy or they are profitable. And then I want to plan for the future. So there's a big 2020. Profitable is another P. And then there's, but in order to achieve all that, you have to master one last P, which is pins. pins. Got to knock down <laughs> the pins. Knock down those pins. No one wants to buy a merchandise from the seventh best bowler in the world. There used to be, there was a comedian named Jeff Stilson in the 1980s. And uh, he had this bit about bowling commentators where he'd go, uh, yeah, bowling commentating, it's like, what's their job? Um, yeah, what do you think he's going to do right here, Frank? Well, I don't know. I think he's probably going to try to knock down those pins, Stan. That's what I'd do. <laughs> it's like, and it's still true today. Yeah, it's yeah. The same still got to knock down the pins. Also, shout out to my namesake, Chris Shankle, who was an American sports commentator that I was named after. He is my namesake. Did you ever get tapes of Chris Shankle? Yeah, of course. I mean, he's probably the most... Outside of, you know, Earl Anthony, Dick Weber, Don Carter, Billy Hardwick. You know, Chris Schenkel's name is synonymous within the industry. Everyone knows that name. So my mom, my I mom, didn't know that you were named after him. My mom thought I was going to be a girl. And when she the last time she saw him, when she was very pregnant with me, he said, if it's a boy, name him Christopher. And she was like, okay. And in her head, she was like, he's going to be, it's going to be a Jennifer. And then, uh, and then I came out with a wiener and she was like, well, I guess I got to honor. So she named me Christopher. Wow. So, That's really cool. I just some no more idea. fun bowling trivia. But anytime you're in town and anytime it's possible, I will make this work. I had such a good time. Good luck at the tournament this weekend. Thank you. Um, and hopefully I get to meet your family someday. Yeah, I'll bring them out. Bring I'll, them out. I'll bring them out. I'll bring them out to, I mean, it's easier to bring you to Oz than, you know, a wife and three children to LA. But it's That okay. is true. I'm going to see if I can convince them. I'll to sacrifice... My travel happiness by non, no more sleeping on these long flights. I'll be bringing children with me. You know, every time I get on the plane and I see families, because I travel alone uh, 99.9% of the time, so I have my routine. I get my earphone, my noise counseling headphones. I got my playlist ready to go. I know exactly what I'm going to do. And then I shut off. It's fantastic. And then I walk past these families with three, four kids traveling. And then, you know, you get off the plane. You see that same family and the parents are bloodshot eyed. They're miserable. Yeah. The flight has been terrible. And uh, I'm willing to sacrifice that, Chris, that, that blissful, peaceful flight so my family can Yeah, meet those you. parents are zookeepers for whatever, however long that flight is. They're zookeepers and all the cages are open and they have to re-cage the animals constantly. I can tell you a funny story. So my wife, we have three kids. My wife wants four. 
and I'm not entirely sure how I feel about four children, but I'm, I'm open to the idea because I love my wife. And I saw uh, a mother and a father on a plane. That's one of my things. Four? How do you travel with four? Four is a lot. You know, now you're taking up two rows of seats on a plane. You need two hotel rooms. There's a lot to, to think about. So I saw a family that had four children relatively the same age as mine one been very little and the other one's close in age and i walk past and i ask them is four impossible <laughs> you know i'm curious my wife wants four i'm not entirely sure and the wife was just glowing oh my goodness it's been the best thing we've ever done i i, I highly recommend if you have a chance to have four children have four children and the husband was standing there uh kind of nodding his head in the back and and that was the end of it, I thought. So I walked a couple more steps and then I get a tap on the shoulder from the father and he, he whispers, take me with you. <laughs> <laughs> and I burst out laughing. Don't tell him I said that. Don't tell, Don't tell him I said that. Take me with you. It's him. great, honey. I'm just telling him how great four is. Do five. <laughs> Fuck, have a half a dozen. Come on. Yeah. So I told my wife that story and she's like, that's not going to be you, is it? I said, oh, no, no, <laughs> He was smiling and nodding when his wife was next to him. and then Smart the- man. All right, thank you, Jason. Thank you. The end. The end. What a what a time. ID Tenty scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito.